It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. The Biden administration continues to deal with a migrant surge at the U.S.-Mexico border with an influx of unaccompanied migrant children crossing into the country and being placed in government holding facilities. DHS Secretary Mayorkas spoke on Sunday saying the border is closed and defended the administration's handling of the migrant situation. Meanwhile, former President Trump released a statement saying the Biden administration was to blame for the growing crisis at the border. For this and more, we'll bring in our all-star panel, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, national editor of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, and founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow, Matthew Connetti. Hi, everybody. Uh, Amy, this um, seems to be, you know, just a growing story that is not going away. And it is a little surprising that the administration didn't see it coming from the beginning. Well, it's interesting. I, I think the so Washington Post had at least what I've seen thus far, one of the most comprehensive looks at just how prepared or unprepared this administration was for what's happening right now. It, at least by their reporting, they were given the heads up, the incoming administration, as to what was likely to happen at the border. And this was especially true given how quickly the Biden administration decided to go in and roll back many of the executive orders that President Trump had put in place. And so there was this mixed message going out, not just to folks who are trying to come into this country, but even those within the country about, well, what is it that the Biden administration really wants to see beyond a more humane policy for families and young kids? What are they telling those of us in this country about what the rules should be, that seems to be a sort of muddled, they've been sort of muddling along. And that's the challenge on this issue, right? When each administration runs on the, I'm gonna do it different than the other and goes to you know roll back or put in place things that the other administration said they didn't think were problems, you never get a comprehensive overall look at what needs to happen. And so once again, this is going to be a political football. It's going to be used to attack the other, you know, one side's going to use it to attack the other side. And we're going to be left with very few, it seems as if real solutions to come through the legislative process. Yeah. I, I will say, yes, it's a political football, clearly. And it clearly will play ahead of 2022, wherever this is by the time we get there. But Matthew, 
you know, the contrasts are pretty stark. I mean, you have now the administration spending roughly $90 million for hotel rooms in border states for illegal immigrants to be in hotel rooms in, in that area. You know, we have had the D.C. National Guard sleep in a parking garage for their time in D.C. at, at one point. You've got really tens of thousands of veterans who have served the U.S. who are homeless. And there is kind of a, you know, just a big issue rhetorically about how you're dealing with this day to day. No matter, you know, what the issue of the day is, it becomes, you know, more and more politically explosive. Sure. It's the most pressing uh, domestic crisis uh, on on the Biden administration's radar, even though they refuse to say the word crisis. It's also the most glaring contrast between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And I say that because prior to Biden's coming to office, the crisis was not as severe as it is now. And what made the crisis severe was Biden rolling back the migration protection protocols, the so-called remain in Mexico policy, which forced uh, the migrants to remain in Mexico while their asylum claims are being adjudicated. Biden ripped up the third party uh, nation agreements, which said, look, if you're coming uh, from South or Central America to apply for asylum in the United States, you have to make your asylum claim in the first country you enter. That is not your, your country of origin. He tore that up. And of course, there's just the general attitudinal difference. I mean, Biden has been saying he's going to take a very d- different approach to immigration as Trump. The wall, uh, which is not complete, was ordered everyone to stop construction on midnight of January 20th. Uh, And then, of course, last week, the House voted on two bills, which were partial amnesties uh, for some types of illegal immigrants. And then the Biden administration has released his own comprehensive plan for uh, the uh, amnesty of the illegal immigrants already here. So all that does is send a huge signal to a potential migrants, potential refugees, potential asylum seekers, come, come, come here. Now, there's one policy the Biden administration has kept, and that is a so-called Title 42, which says if you're an adult, they can immediately deport you because of COVID. But if you're a minor, and that includes, you know, people who are two days away from their 18th birthday, who are really economic migrants, um, you can stay. And, and until the policy aspect is addressed, Biden has a huge political vulnerability on his hands, and he is only himself to blame. Yeah. Tom, your thoughts on this and and where it goes next? I mean, the questions will not stop, obviously, as more and more media outlets, and I'm talking, you know, the NBC's, CBS's are going down there talking to migrants, and and they are flat out saying on camera, you know, the reason I came is because it was President Biden and what, what he said. You know, at the beginning of this, it was characterized as a conservative talking point and that it was just meant to be a mallet to hit a, the new administration over the head. It's not that anymore. No, I mean, I think the problem is for Joe Biden is that the three arguments that the Biden administration has been making thus far, and I assume that Joe Biden is going to make when he takes questions on this at his first solo press conference later this week, is number one, that it's Trump's fault. Right. It's Trump's to blame. He dismantled the, the this uh, structure, immigration structure that was in place for years and years and years. And we're just rebuilding it now. Number two, that it's not a crisis. And number three, that the border is closed. These are the claims that that Secretary Mayorkas made on all the Sunday shows that Jen Psaki made from the White House press briefing room every day last week. The problem is that none of those three things are true. 
And so to the extent that, you know, the administration's rhetoric does not match with reality, it's going to continue to be a, a political crisis. And then to your point, Brett, there's also the, the sort of media aspect of this, which is the A, the tone and tenor of the media's coverage of this, which is markedly different from when the Trump administration had their surge and, you know, we're putting kids in cages and you had, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Jim Acosta running down to the border to do, you know, these performative uh, pieces. None of that happening thus far. And on top of that, you've got a Bi- the Biden administration, which is effectively declared a media blackout. I mean, the only pictures we've had have been leaked from, ironically, if, if the reporting is correct, from Democratic members of Congress who visited those facilities. So, and, and that's, I think, so there's the media aspect of this, which is uh, an issue. But at the end of the day, until the administration really sort of grapples with the reality of the situation, instead of just using rhetorical denials, um, it's going to continue to be a political problem and it's not going to go away. Yeah. I, Amy, last thing on this about the media and the transparency about getting reporters or camera crews or whatever. I was really kind of stunned when Secretary Mayorkas said, you know, we're working on this and we'll get you some video. You know, had that been said by a secretary of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, I just think, I don't know, I just think heads would explode. Yeah. I mean, listen, the press has been pushing, though, to be fair, from minute one about why there is no access there. The press secretary continuing to get hammered on this. And they're just right now willing to sort of hold the line doing this, arguing that it's not safe, there's still COVID protocols, but clearly there's a, you know, this is a PR problem as well. And this, but as, as Tom pointed out, the fact that you have a Democratic Senator, Chris Murphy, who was the one who said, things are really bad down here. I had a 13 year old girl crying in front of me. This is terrible. This needs to stop. Suggests that no one's out there trying to say that this is going great, that this isn't, you know, again, outside of the Biden White House, even Democrats are saying we recognize the challenge here. And Democrats who sit in border districts are saying the same thing. Meantime, Matthew, you've got the the setup now for what what looks like to to be a, a massive pitch on infrastructure. New York Times is saying that the the Biden administration is getting ready to pitch $3 trillion on an infrastructure plan that may be financed in part by the highest tax increases the country's ever seen. How's that going to go? <laughs> well, it's all up to Joe Manchin, Brett. You need a, we need to ask him, get him on the podcast, because he's going to be the deciding vote on this bill, uh, just like uh, in the uh, COVID uh, rescue plan, the American rescue plan which was the uh, Biden administration's first bite at the so-called reconciliation apple. And now I think uh, as Democratic uh, House member telegraphed last week in a uh, hot mic moment with the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, I think they're going to have to go uh, for reconciliation on this. This is the, we did the rescue apparently, and now this is the relief. And pretty soon I think voters are going to say, when will we get some relief? Because we've had the government spend, I think uh, about, uh, over three trillion in just the last year, and now he wants to spend another three trillion. Uh, this is a, a recipe for um, taxation, spending, debt, all those issues that so electrified the populace uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration. I think they're going to come back as soon as the pandemic is behind us. 
Tom, I mean, potentially, I mean, just looking at the outline that at least the Times lays out, and, and we're talking to people up on the Hill as well, they're, they're talking about really aggressive plans that include climate change and reducing carbon emissions um, that would spend heavily on infrastructure and clean energy. Uh, with the numbers you have now, minus getting Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and whoever else is on the line on your side, it seems like a heavy lift. It does. I mean, the irony is as much as the COVID relief plan was uh, sort of a knockdown drag out fight that didn't get any Republican votes in the House or the Senate, that turns out that was the easy part. And everything moving forward is going to be harder than that, whether you're talking about immigration or you're talking about, you know, this this three trillion dollar infrastructure plan that is going to have. I mean, Republicans are already uh, you know, upset and grousing about the fact that they thought the, the American Rescue Plan was this sort of democratic slush fund that was going out to to states and, and localities, which in large part it is. I mean, I tweeted out an article this morning from the Denver Post said federal money flows into Denver suburbs and now they have to figure out how to spend it <laughs> because they've got, you know, 25 percent of the of the state's municipalities saw their revenue actually go up. You've got California with 15 billion dollar surplus now sitting on or getting 150 billion from the federal government that they're going to have to figure out how to spend. So I don't think there's any appetite in Washington among the Republican Party to dole out more money and especially not to raise taxes the way that the Democrats want to do it. Um, but to Matthew's point and to your point, it's a heavy lift, but the Democrats are going to, I think, try and they're going to try and push forward with it. And it will come down to the, you know, King Joe and Queen Kirsten, I guess, in the Senate to make, see if they can do this through reconciliation. But it's going to be it's going to be uh, another another big fight. Mm-hmm. You know, just one thing, too, to remember is that Pelosi's margin in the House isn't very big either. Right. right. Manchin is going to have a lot of say, but, you know, we've got a number of special elections that are still down the pike in places like Louisiana and New Mexico. And Let alone what they're trying to do in Iowa. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to see. So Democrats right now, until the end of April, they only have 219 votes. So, you know, one Democrat in the House has a lot of power. Two Democrats in the House have a lot of power. You get five together and there are five there are more than five moderates who also would look at a bill that that taxes, et cetera, and say, mm, I don't know about I don't know so much about this. So I, I think we have to remember, too, that 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 the Pelosi margin in the House is just so read thin. And you get somebody like Jared Golden from Maine, who's already voted against. He was the only Democrat to vote against the rescue package. But, you know, he just needs to find one other ally. And there's some real problems here. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. And of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Amy, in infrastructure uh, and to hear lawmakers talk about it, they usually think that they can get the the bridge, the road, the airport that that said congressman wants fixed so that they can go home with some ticker tape parade about fixing it. Is that enough? Right. It always comes down to, and 
we can make a good infrastructure joke here about the rubber meeting the road <laughs> when it comes to how do you pay for it? So as Tom and Matthew pointed out, who's going to be willing to pay for it in taxes, not Republicans? How many Democrats are going to be willing to pay for that? Plus, there's a definition of what infrastructure is. Um, Democrats, not only are they talking about things like roads and bridges and broadband, but also the caring infrastructure, right? So people who, especially women, many of whom have been laid off in this pandemic, who are in jobs in daycare or uh, taking care of older people, things like that. So, you know, one more thing, just final, you know, we, we are in this moment, we've been in this moment for quite some time where one party has a pretty slim majority, but they recognize that this may be the only bite of the apple they're going to get to do the things they want to do. And so they go big, recognizing that it's probably going to cost them seats in the midterm may even cost them the majority, although they may not believe it, but it probably does. But at least they got something done rather than muddling along, trying to do a bipartisan deal on something and getting nothing for it and still losing in a midterm election. And so, you know, really since 2008, it's just kind of gone back and forth like this. And we'll see if this is the this is a continuation of the theme or whether because this margin is so narrow now that that Democrats have, that Democrats are the ones that sort of stand in the way of it getting much bigger. Well, you're right, Amy. I think that their sense is to go big, just go as big as you possibly can, even if it makes some Republicans really mad that that they thought you were going to work with them. You know, there, there are Republicans up there on the Hill that were ready once Joe Biden took office to start making a deal. And Matthew, that's just, there's no deal to be had. Well, the moderate Joe Biden has been replaced in office by a very ambitious liberal. I mean, who's drawing a lot uh, from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in terms of policy ideas, in terms of ambitions. And uh, we saw that with Susan Collins, I think early on in that white, in the Oval Office meeting where she was willing, ready to work with Biden, but the Biden White House uh, and I think Biden's advisors said, no, that's not the way to go because of this, I believe, misreading of what happened in Barack Obama's first two years. It's not that Barack Obama got nothing done and the electorate repudiated him anyway. It's that he went ahead with Obamacare, despite the fact that Obamacare was unpopular, despite the fact that the voters in Massachusetts decided to replace Ted Kennedy with Scott Brown when Obamacare was literally the issue, whether you're going to be that, that vote for Obamacare. They went ahead. And so the voters, I think, responded negatively to the type of majority overreach that Amy's talking about. Now, look, uh, Biden is pretty popular right now. And so I do think he has sure. some runway. He has, he, has, he, has, he has some runway. And I, I do think that in terms of infrastructure and also the, the green pack, the climate side of this, which is very important to Democrats, I think uh, they'll be able to get something through the House. Um, and Manchin probably will go ahead with the two because, you know, the, the actual net addition to the debt will be not the not the full price tag because of the tax increases. But th it's really just a question of uh, Biden seems to think that people will be voting in November based on what's happening today on his what 64th day in office. And that's not the case. And next year, the, there will be a different set of issues and people might not look so fondly back. Uh, on these uh, on these first 100 days. Yeah, I mean, you've got um, the possibility, Mitt Romney's talked about a gas tax, and there was some, you know, 
thought that as we were controlling energy and gas prices were really, really low, that, you know, maybe that's something that they could get in. But now with, you know, the Keystone Pipeline being blocked by the administration and other potential climate change actions that may affect that industry, there's a question about gas prices and, and where that's going. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. But I, I want to go back real quickly. We, we, we did a poll, Real Clear Opinion Research. We have new data coming out uh, tomorrow on Joe Biden's first couple months in office and specifically around the American Rescue Plan. And it is very popular. I mean, 68% of folks approve of it. And uh, in, in 72%, I think, if you go through uh, some of the individual provisions, including a majority of Republicans, which presents an interesting dilemma for Republicans. Again, none of them voted for it in the House or the Senate. And yet a majority of Republicans around the country like some or all of the provisions in the bill. And so I, I do think there is this sense that and the other thing that I think people need to keep an eye on is that the right track, wrong track, which has traditionally been, the public's always been in a sour mood for the last you know, 10 years or so. It's basically a two-third, one-third proposition that the country's going in the wrong direction as opposed to being on the right track. It briefly reached parity at about 45% right after Obama took office in 2009, but has been pretty, pretty um, consistently negative ever since then. It's at, the, it's at the highest point, meaning the best point it's been at, in nine years, where now 40% or so think the country's going in the right direction, about 55% or so think it's going in the wrong direction, which is a market improvement, which means the public is actually feeling fairly optimistic. Um, there are, you know, I think it's, it's the vaccines, it's, you know, we're heading into spring, all those things. And perhaps it's part of the American Rescue Plan as well. So I think it could be at the end of the day, you know, again, maybe this doesn't play out for the midterms, but it plays out. It sets Joe Biden up for reelection or, or the Democrats, whoever that might be, Kamala Harris, that it all comes down to this, these first days and their ability to jam that thing through, even on a party line vote, because they're now going to be able to sell it to the, the public and the public will look back on it and, and think of that as sort of a, a turning point um, for the better. Yeah, the popularity of that, Amy, is a, is a big deal. Uh, and the question is, you know, is there a pent up? want, need to, once COVID simmers down, for everybody to get out and spend in the middle of a ton of money coming to these states and different places coming from the federal government. We're going to be flush for a little while. So there is, yes, a sugar high, theoretically. And I do think by the summer, actually, we're going to see some of this. I mean, I'll just speak for myself. Uh, I am ready to get out of here and do something this summer. (laughs) I need to go and do something this summer. So, um, but, and hopefully by then, most of us will be vaccinated, right? If we're, if we really are into this, you know, May and June with people getting vaccinated, obviously kids, not yet. So that's going to free up a lot of pent up demand, Mm -hmm. but man, there's a long way between this summer and October of 2022, right? Mm -hmm. And um, not to say that the economy is suddenly going to shrink, but just, where, where, how are people going to be feeling by then? Are we still going to feel flush and happy? You know, this sort of is what we're feeling right now, this boom of enthusiasm, like, okay, light at the end of the tunnel. Yay. We've made it through this awful year. We can see where things are going to get better. Are we still going to feel that way next fall? And as we're seeing with what's happening on the border, you know, one crisis can redefine people's 
you know, mood. And I'm not saying it's going to be necessarily a border crisis. All right. Or, you know, China and. Yeah, exactly. Raising its but head. Whatever else. None of us had pandemic on our pick for the 2020 election. No, it either. was not on my bingo card. No. Matthew, <laughs> last word just about China. As we get ready to go further in debt with all of these things, including $3 trillion in infrastructure, there's one country that holds a lot of it, and that's China. And watching them in that face-to-face in Alaska was a bit of an eye-opener, I think, for some people about how aggressive they are with the Biden administration off the get-go. Yeah. And if it wasn't an eye opener, it should be. I mean, look, the Biden administration went in there wanting to talk tough against China. And I I don't know if they anticipated that China can talk <laughs> tough back to the United States. And so what we saw in Anchorage last week with uh, Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan meeting their Chinese counterparts, I think was a wake up call that demonstrates just how far relations between the United States and the, um, the People's Republic of China have deteriorated. And this is an extremely dangerous situation because the days where America was um, the lone superpower and uh, had commanded huge power and sway fine economically, culturally, in terms of security and defense, those days are coming uh, to an end. I mean, we're still the superpower, we're still extremely um, influential in the world, but China is rising. And the uh, chances for miscalculation, uh, I'm afraid, are, are rising as well. That's one to watch. Thank you all. Here's a bit of historical trivia for you. On March 26, 1979, the 39th U.S. president, Jimmy Carter, brought together Israeli Prime Minister Begin and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat to end the 30 years of war between their countries. These three leaders convened for a summit at Camp David, where they went through intensive negotiations, culminating in the signing of the Egyptian-Israeli Treaty of Mutual Recognition and Peace. That will do it for us this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Tom and Amy and Matthew, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.